It's sweet to be together. It's sad. Um, I've learned from the Gaineses as well. I've seen them mourn over sin and seen them hurt. I had the privilege of teaching their two oldest boys in KTC. So as you saw the video, uh, we need some volunteers. We need some help. And it does impact lives. It does impact these little ones. And uh, just to be clear, the Gaineses are moving out of town. They're moving to Jacksonville. So we're very sad to, to see them go. Jacksonville, North Carolina, not Florida. Um, so anyway, but um, so yeah, uh, bitter and sweet. Two Sundays in a row. We had the stitions last week. Next week, I just want happy stuff. No, no bitter stuff. So we'll get to hear from the team that came back from Moldova. Uh, they're back safely. Um, and so yeah. Uh, Grayson was about to run up here. I had to restrain him in his seat. They're very excited to share about what the Lord did. So, um, so yeah, next Sunday we'll have some testimonies of what the Lord uh, did in Moldova. So uh, we are going to be in Romans 4 today. So if you want to turn there, I'm um, going to give a, a little uh, bit of instruction and read it, and then we'll pray. So Romans 4, we're going to be uh, verses 1 through 12. So half the chapter, Romans is in the back part of the Bible. So the main point of the text, uh, the title of the text is Righteousness Comes by Faith. And that's the main point of the text. As I was going over this sermon, just felt like the Lord was impressing upon me over and over and over. Righteousness comes by faith. And so, yes, amen. So um, it's not about us working toward God or being in some kind of exclusive club. It's about just belief in who the Savior is, and that's how we're made righteous. So I'm going to read chapter 4, and then we'll pray. So, chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that it's trustworthy. I thank you, Lord, for your grace toward us. I thank you that this morning does not count upon 
my performance or my preparedness or my righteousness or what I have done this week, that we would be hopeless, utterly hopeless. Jesus, we are sinful and we love sin. We love death. We like to think that we don't, but we do. So I pray that you will help us this morning, Lord. Help us to see you as high and lifted up. Help us to see you as the only one worthy of true worship, as the only one who can come and rescue. I confess, Lord, that I am one who is full of sin. And I pray, Lord, that you will use the time this morning as you use broken vessels. I thank you, Father, for just even the the first 30 to 45 minutes I've had here to have a sister speak encouragement to me, to hear a testimony, to be welcomed, to sing praises. I thank you, Lord, for your kindness of leaving us the local church, leaving us a body to be able to encourage each other. I thank you, Father, for your grace and your kindness. I pray you would help us now. In your name, amen. So in every discipline in life, there are figures who are huge, and they kind of stand above all others. So this week, the Olympics just kicked off, which I'm really excited about. Um, I like the Olympics. Every year, or every four years, there are sports I never think about that I suddenly care a lot about. So swimming, track and field, other things. Uh, And we like to see Olympians come together and compete because we want to see who is the best of the best. And not only that, people like to compare Olympians to people in the past. And so we like to to debate who is the greatest Olympian. So I read a story this week about a guy, Caleb Dressel, who I'd never heard of before this week, who has been dubbed the next Michael Phelps. And so he's supposed to, you know, be a really great swimmer and win a bunch of medals. Um, And, you know, people will probably someday when we have some new crazy generational fast person compare him or her to Usain Bolt or Allison Felix. Uh, Simone Biles is competing in Tokyo, by far, greatest gymnast of all time. At some point, she'll move on, and then there'll be somebody else coming, and they'll say, you know, this is the next Simone Biles. And we see it not just in in sports, we see it in all disciplines of life. So I'm going to actually test your pop culture knowledge here. I'm going to ask you some questions. If you know who it is, just blurt it out, okay? Uh, So in music... um, James Brown is the godfather of? All right, that was easy. Good job. Michael Jackson is the king of? Pop. Beyonce is the queen of? R&B. R&B. <laughs> Did you say beehive? Uh, all right, let's see if we have any hardcore gamers. I just gave it away. Todd Rogers is the king of video games. Uh, anybody know that? All right. B.B. Uh, King is the king of the blues. That's right. And Hippocrates is the father of modern medicine. So I take the Hippocratic Oath. So there are these people who are, they kind of transcend the, their gifting. And so they're known not only in their discipline, but they're known kind of in culture, you know, just broader culture. And so, you know, there was a time when uh, R&B was not huge. There was a time when pop hadn't come of age, right? And there are these people who come, and they kind of move everything to the next level. They kind of transcend the sport or the, or the, the film or the music that they make, and they kind of make it to where everybody starts to care about it. 
Well, in the Jewish culture, Abraham was the grandmaster or the granddaddy of the Jews. He was literally where it began. The Jewish people rooted, literally rooted their identity in who Abraham was and God choosing him and creating a people out of him. And so it's no surprise, Paul has just labored, as we had the last three Sundays of, of just great preaching from Romans 3, Eric, and 2 from Anjur, about how we are sinful, we are not worthy of salvation, we're in need of justification. And so Paul now is going to shift and use Abraham's life as an example as to why all of us have no hope apart from God, and all of us have nothing to offer to God. So he's going to start with the granddaddy, and he knows if he can take Abraham and show that even Abraham had to have faith and belief by God to be saved, then no one after Abraham could have any hope of claiming they're greater than Abraham and working toward him. So it's no surprise that Paul chooses Abraham, and he's about to use the scripture to kind of tear down some of these beliefs about who Abraham was. Now, in the ancient culture, the, uh, the Jewish people um, worked hard to, the religious leaders especially, worked hard to create an exclusive culture. They wanted to have this kind of super elite bubble that they were in where they were near God and they were close to God. And so they worked very hard to kind of create boundaries. It was very clear who was in and who was out. And they didn't want to be like the people that were out. They didn't want to be like the people that were across town. They wanted everybody to know. And Jesus shows up, and he starts to radically challenge this idea. And there's a, there's a dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders in John chapter 8, where Jesus is telling the religious leaders that um, he's come to offer salvation to all. And the religious leaders, they don't like this. Again, they've spent their whole lives generations of creating a chasm between them and the rest of the world. And so they push back on Jesus and say, oh, yeah, we have Abraham as our father. And so what are you going to say about that, Jesus? And Jesus says to them, you're not doing the work of the true father. You're doing the work of your father, the devil. And if you weren't doing the work of the father, the devil, and you were of God, you would see who I am. And he claims, he says before Abraham was, I am, which that was the Old Testament way of referring to God in like the most holy, reverent way. And so you didn't play around with this. So when, when Jesus says that, it pushes them over the edge. They literally pick up stones and they try to stone him and kill him. Like this is serious business to them about who Abraham is. And so Paul's going to be very intentional in his choice of taking on Abraham to show that even Abraham's only hope was his belief in the Messiah to come was his belief in the righteousness that God provided. All right, so let's jump into the text here, verses 1 to 2. So what does it say? It says, what then was gained by Abraham, our forefather? There's that connection. He's going back to say, we know you think Abraham is the granddaddy. He's the, he's, nobody is greater than him. What was gained by our, uh, what shall we say, was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Paul begins with Abraham's life. Now, the, all of chapter 4 is about Abraham. We're going to get the first half today 
And then next week, Pastor Sean's going to give us the second half of chapter 4 in Abraham's life. So Paul starts with this question. Did Abraham somehow, by his works, please God? Did Abraham somehow, in his own strength, merit God's favor? Did Abraham somehow find the secret formula to pleasing God? If so, then he would have something to come in and boast about. He would have earned his right into God's throne room. So he would have been the only person who could have busted in and said, Hey, look, I kept your law. I did what you said to do without mistake. Now give me salvation. You owe it to me. It's my due. And so Paul seems like he's setting up the argument like that. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. So did Abraham have something to boast about? No, he shifts the whole thing. He says, but not before God. So he comes in and he says, Abraham didn't have anything to boast about before God because he didn't keep God's law perfectly. God is immutable. What that means is he doesn't change. Now, why doesn't he change? Because he's perfect. There is nothing to change. There's nothing to improve upon. There's nothing to make better. God is fully and complete and satisfied in himself. And so the law that flows out of him is perfect. There's no mistake in it. There's no, uh, there's no uh, codicil that needs to be amended or attached to it because there was a mistake. And so this really bothers us in modern culture. It bristles against who we are, that there would be a law that would be perfect and that we would have to keep it perfectly without one misstep to be accepted by God. So not, not one blemish on your record, never a bad day, never a bad moment, never a bad morning, never do you get a do-over, never do you get to hope no one is looking. You have to keep the law perfectly. And this bristles against us. We want to say, if you ask a lot of people how they think they get to God, they will say, you just have to be a good person. You just have to do more good than your bad, and God's going to kind of weigh the scales out. You probably don't want it to be close. You want to try to tip it, you know, in your favor. But if your good outweighs your bad, then surely God's going to accept you. Surely he's going to, surely there's some relativity to his truth. It's not absolute. We, we want to bristle against this as modern people and say, it, it can't be that you have to have perfection. It can't be that that's the only way to God. But if you think about why we even have laws, that's how all laws work. They require perfection. I can't be honest on my taxes for 19 years and decide in year 20 to cheat, and then when I get caught by the IRS, go in and say, I understand what the problem is. I was honest for 19 years. I just made one bad year. Like, if I go 20 years of cheating, now I've cheated more than I was honest, then I think I should be prosecuted. Nobody's going to buy that argument, right? They're going to say, write us a check, or we'll happily take you to jail. You choose. That's how all law works. Now, I'm kind of joking with the taxes, but think about something more serious. Think about somebody who saves five people's lives, okay? So she comes and she rescues somebody from drowning, gives them CPR, brings them back to life. She rescues somebody from a bear attack. She fights the bear off, sprays it with mace, drags the person to safety, we go through this five times. She's literally saved five people. Then she decides to kill four people and is arrested. She can't show up before the judge and say, 
what is the problem? I have said, look, here, I got it in my phone. Five people, I've saved their lives. They're vouching me. No, she's guilty. She broke the law that condemned murder. So she is guilty and needs to be dealt with accordingly. And this is what Paul is saying. God is perfect. He's incapable of change because he's already, he's been perfection from ever. He did, he, did, he wasn't created. And so the only way to satisfy and be accepted is perfection. And we have no hope of that. So where do we go? If Abraham couldn't be perfect and he didn't have any hope and he's the granddaddy of the Jewish people, what is our hope? What was his hope? We have to go on to verse 3. It says, for what does the scripture say? Now, Paul's about to reference Genesis 15 here. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham's hope was belief. That's how he was able to be counted righteous before God. He trusted in God to offer salvation and fulfill his own promises, God to fulfill his promises, not Abraham to fulfill his promises. Now, if you go read Genesis 15, it's this famous chapter where God is coming to Abraham and he's saying, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And so the way that God seals that promise is Abraham takes a, a, a goat, he takes a heifer, and he takes a ram. He kills them and he cuts them in half. He sets one half on one side, on the left side, one half on the right side. And then in those days, this is how you made prom- this is how you made a contract, okay? So it's pretty intense. You don't just sign on the dotted line. You cut an animal in half. Your hands are getting dirty. Put it on the left. You put it on the right. You walk between it, and the implication is I, you and I are making a promise. I'm going to keep my promise, and if I don't, may it be done to me like it was done to this animal. You better be sure about your promises back then, all right? So there's no small claims court. All right, so, so Abraham, this uh, goat, heifer, and ram divided, and then God passes through to, to give his promise that I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to create a nation out of you. And if God is perfect, that means he's incapable of breaking his promises. So Abraham knew this is as good as done. In fact, it's better than as good as done. It is done. Now, did God do that because Abraham was special and he had earned it and he was somehow born with some innate thing that you have to have to be accepted? No. What happens? What comes after Genesis 15? Genesis 16. It's not a trick question. Genesis 16. What do you see? Abraham is sleeping with his wife's servant to try to fulfill God's promise and give a son. Right after God has said, I will give you a son, I will make you a great nation, Abraham goes and tries to create his own solution to fulfill God's promise. There is no hope. That's what Paul is saying. Go back and read the Old Testament. It's all pointing forward to a Messiah. The Messiah has come, and I don't want you to miss it. So go on to verse 4, because he's going to show how absurd the works are. He says, now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So you don't work to get a gift. If you have a job right now, I doubt every other Friday you run into your boss's office and you're like, thank you, thank you so much for your gift. 
I had no idea. You keep doing it every other Friday. Please don't feel compelled that you have to. I mean, you're blowing my mind here with these gifts. I don't know what to do. Nobody responds that way that I've ever known that works. What do you do on payday? You're like, you better give me my money. I worked, I earned it. Give me a raise and a bonus <laughs> and more vacation. It's due. I worked. In the U.S., you get paid in dollars. So if you work $10 an hour for 40 hours, you're due $400. You don't run in and go, thank you. I had no idea this $400 was coming. In fact, it's owed to you, and if your boss doesn't pay you, you can go through the court system to try to recover those lost wages from not getting paid. So Paul is saying, if you work, it's not counted as a gift. It's counted as your due. But is so then that could create the the, uh, hope. Is there any hope we can work? We can do enough. Is there a chance that we could actually somehow be perfect. Well, if you've been paying attention the last two Sundays, you know the answer is no. Go to Romans 3. We're going to read 19, 20, and 23. If you have any doubts that you could potentially offer something acceptable to God, this should kill it. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And what does that mean in verse 23? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, yes, if you could keep God's law perfectly, you would have the hope of salvation. Is there any hope in any universe that that could happen absolutely unequivocally no Paul is saying you have no hope of salvation by working on your own I mean we have all sinned tens of thousands of times by the time that we are five I mean if you've ever been around little kids it's messy I mean there's a lot of crying all day long about disobeying I mean it's not fun well it is fun I'm not saying don't have kids but like be ready all right it's going to test you All right, so what is the hope then? If we can't work our way to God and we have no hope apart from God, then what is our hope? Verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This is our hope. Amen? If we cannot work our way to God, we need God to come to us. We are stuck in an ocean of sin. I mean, imagine that you are stuck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Why the Pacific Ocean? It's the scariest to me. It's the biggest and the deepest. I would not want to be stuck there. You're stuck in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You have no boat. You have no raft. You have no wetsuit. You have no clothes. You have no food. You have no water. It's just a matter of time before you drown or get eaten by sharks. There is no hope at all. And then suddenly, a helicopter appears above you. And a line on a winch comes down to you. But you're too weak to even climb up. So a rescue diver jumps out of the helicopter into the ocean, swims over to you, puts a life vest on you, attaches you to the line. The winch reels you into the helicopter. There, an EMS person takes you, puts you on a gurney, 
and gives you water and medicine and fluids. Now, did you do anything to rescue yourself? Are you going to show up at the press conference and say, really, I deserve a little credit because I laid there limp in the water while he put the life back jacket on me? I mean, I didn't resist at all. So, no, you're going to yell into the microphone and you're going to boldly declare, these men and women are heroes of the Coast Guard. They came and they saved my life. I was dead. I had no hope. And in reality, for you and me, the predicament is much worse. We are hopelessly lost, drowning, eating death in a sin, in the ocean of sin. And Jesus comes, and he takes our lifeless bodies, and he rescues us. He he is the one who deserves all of the glory. And so Paul's going to drive this home by shifting and talking about David, a hero of the Old Testament. So go to verses 6 to 8. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing to whom the one God counts righteousness apart from from works. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and in whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. So Paul's quoting Psalm 32 here. And this is a Psalm of David. David was the greatest king in the Old Testament. And he wrote a lot of Psalms. He left us a lot of kind of raw emotion before the heart of the Lord. And David was called a man after God's own heart. He was called a a man who literally wanted the same things that God wanted. That is very high praise, very high praise. But when we see David's life, you see a lot of mess. He was one who was well acquainted with sorrow. He was one who knew himself down to his marrow and his inner being. He knew the endless crevasse of sin that existed in his life. He was one who was given to lust and committed adultery with another man's wife. Not just that, but it was a faithful servant. It was a friend. And then he was one who had that man, that faithful servant, the one who was literally watching out for David's life. He had him killed to try to cover up his sin. And there's a story in 2 Samuel 24, that really resonates with me because it's this story where you get David trying to trust in himself. And I'm bent that way. I'm bent to try to want to make my own decisions, to try to want to think that I can work out a better plan than God, or try to want to rest in the things that I've done. And so David orders this census. And even his military commander, who is really not a righteous guy, is like, this is a bad idea. And David's like, do it. And he orders this census. Well, it doesn't seem that bad on the surface, but what's going on in David's heart is he no longer wants to put his hope and his trust and his faith in God. He wants to know how many people are in my army? How many mighty warriors do I have? How much equipment do we have? I need to know that I'm secure based on this great kingdom that I've built. And God comes and he rebukes David and he says, you're missing it. You're not trusting in me. You have no hope apart from me. And as a result of David's sin, 70,000 people die. The adultery, the murder, all that stuff is terrible. But 70,000 people of his own kingdom are killed because of his sin and his selfishness to want to try to trust in himself above God. So he was a man, when we read his words, we should take to heart. He was a man well acquainted with sin and sorrow. So what does it say? 
He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. And this is what the full Psalm 32, 1 through 5 says. He says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. And Selah is meant to let that sink in for a moment. You know the feeling of sinning and not reckoning with it. The weight and the pain of what that feels like. And then he goes on and he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. So I finally, he's saying, I finally realized I'm being an idiot. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So David said, I know, I know what it's like to commit deep sins that change who you are in your core being. And I know the relief of God's forgiveness. I know the relief of being covered. Before Christ, we're all dead. And we're all groaning in our sin. And we're all like David. And we're eating death. We're literally eating poison, the things that kill us. You can almost think of it like laying on the floor and and somebody just keeps putting weight on top of you your whole life. The more you sin, the more you pile up. And and it's just crushing you until it completely crushes you. But then God comes in and he forgives. That's what David says. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgive the iniquity of my sin. That is our only hope. Christ is our only hope. Now, how do we attain this hope? How do we attain this belief in him? Paul's going to drive home this point by not only attacking who the Jews thought Abraham was and what his purpose was, but circumcision. So as we move on now to verses 9 to 12, Abraham was the granddaddy of the Jews. He was their forefather. And the flag planted over his life was circumcision. That is what... They said, made them different. That is how God sealed them and made them an exclusive club. And Paul's about to attack it and tear it down and show that only righteousness comes by faith. So read with me in verse 9. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So Paul says, we all say Faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Then he's going to ask some questions. How was it counted before or after circumcision? So Paul's about to go here, and he's going to say, was it the act that made Abraham righteous, or was it the belief in what God was telling him to do that made him righteous? And belief and unbelief are always at the root of our actions. Belief in God is always preceded by loving acts performed by God. Unbelief in God is always preceded by sin. If you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, way back in the garden, unbelief started in their hearts. Did the sin actually take place? Not until they put, like if they had grabbed the apple and put it, not apple, sorry, fruit. We don't know what it was. They grabbed the fruit and put it right here and then put it back. Had they not sinned? Were they not actually sinning until the fruit was on their lips and in their mouth and they were chewing? Is that when the sin began? It was long before that. 
The sin began when they began to doubt who God was. The sin began that they, when they began to doubt that it was God's best for them to abstain from eating that fruit. The sin began when they started to think, maybe I know better than God and I should be the one making the decisions. The sin began when they wanted to at least be equal, if not greater, than who God was. The sin began when they wanted to take God's place. They wanted the knowledge of good and evil because they believed God was withholding things for, from them. That, belief, that sin in their heart is what caused them to do the outward action. It's always that way. Jesus told us that plainly. If you go to Matthew 15, verses 16 to 28, this is what he says. And he said, Are you still without understanding? Do you not see that what goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This defiles a person. For out of the mouth come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. That is who we are. We are sinners. We are those who slander. We are those who are selfish. We are those who are lazy. We are those who take advantage of other people. We are those who honk when people cut us off in traffic. I mean, I've heard about people doing that. I don't know. We are those who rage in our hearts when people interfere with our kingdom. When I, it, it, sin always and always begins in the heart. Righteousness always begins in the heart. I remember when I was 17 or 18, I used to work out at this gym in my hometown. And um, after I'd been working out there for a while, this guy named James started coming there. And I didn't know him well. He was older than me. But I remember he was a senior, and he was from my hometown. He was a senior in high school when I was in middle school. And this guy was, you know, he was a stud. He, was, he played football. He was a big guy. He was a tight end. He was a really good player. We had this, uh, you know how schools do superlatives, and you have, like, you know, wittiest and most athletic and all that. We had, a, um, we had an award called Mr. MHS. I went to Maybank High School. So it was Mr. MHS. It was supposed to be like the, the coolest award you could get. So this guy was Mr. MHS. So I remember he's, you know, I don't know, 23, 24. I'm 17, 18. So I'm working out with one of my friends at the gym. He starts coming, so we start working out together. And um, so I thought this would be cool. This guy's, you know, he's older than me. He's cool. And I remember him openly, after we've, we've been working out for a while, openly talking about wanting to m commit adultery on his wife, like two, three times, like very open. And uh, I mean, I was, you know, just a fat neck, dumb 17-year-old, but even then, that bothered me, and I thought, this doesn't seem right that you would be talking about this, like in an open company, like, like you're talking about you want to, you know, I don't know, go to the beach or something. It's just, and so I lost, you know, lost touch with him. It was just really this kind of one summer and, um, and I ended up hearing later from a friend that he just kind of made a total mess of his life and was divorced. And the problems in his marriage started way before the divorce. I mean, the problems in his marriage started, you know, long before he and his wife were separated and having problems. The problem started when he had this open desire that he would talk about with other people that he wanted to commit adultery on his wife. That's how it always is. What comes out of our hearts is what we're believing or disbelieving about God. 
And so Paul wants to make that clear, that obedience is the same way. Abraham was obedient to God long before he obeyed his command of circumcision. He was believing the truth about who God was and how God could deliver on his promise long before, long before he had actually circumcised himself or Isaac. And this is an assault on the religious leaders because, as I mentioned, circumcision was a flag over Abraham's life. It was a badge that the Jewish leaders wore to show that they, a tangible way that they were different from the rest of the world. And so this is why Paul takes dead aim at Abraham and circumcision, because he wants to show, even back then, and Roger did a great job in his sermon on Romans 3, 21 to 26, to say all those Old Testament heroes, Abraham, David, Moses, Noah, they were looking to the Messiah. They were looking to the hope of salvation. That was their hope. And so Paul's going to go on. He's going to very clearly address this in verse 10. He says, how was it counted to him? Let me back up. He said, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Paul's trying to be exceptionally clear here. Now, many times in film and literature, you'll have an author or a director who wants to imply some deeper meaning without explicitly saying it. I'll give you a couple examples. So in the book, To Kill a Mockingbird, most people have to read that in school. It's a well-known book. The mockingbird is meant to symbolize innocence. In the Disney movie Up, the uh, balloons are meant to symbolize, symbolize hopes and dreams. So in these stories, often these great tales of fiction, you'll have things that are implied by the author or things that readers infer are implied by the author of these deeper meanings. But you can't prove them. You can't come in and say, well, no, it definitely was this because they don't explicitly say it. So Paul doesn't want anyone to have to infer here. He doesn't want you to have to be a certain level of deep thinking to get his point. He cannot be any clearer. He says, was it before or after he was circumcised that he was righteous? Which one was it? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. The belief about who God was and the salvation and what he was going to do was in his heart before he ever outwardly demonstrated that before God. And in Romans 4, 11, and 12, he's going to bring it home. So let's read it. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So he's saying he received that and he was made righteous before he had done anything. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised. Thank goodness for you and me, because we're not Jewish. Most, well, most of us in this room are not Jewish. For all, to, The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So the Jewish people are not excluded. We're not excluded. Righteousness is available to all through the hope of Jesus. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, meaning physically, but who walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I'm so glad he added that last bit, had before he was circumcised, because you could be tempted even after all this work in 11 verses to say, well, you have to walk in the footsteps of faith. No, yes, you have to walk in the footsteps of faith, but it has to be God, belief in God and the righteousness of God 
and the love of God that motivates you to do the works of God. You can never reverse it. You can never get the order backwards. It's like jumping out of a plane without a parachute and saying you'll find one on the way down. You can flap your arms as much as you want. You can look in the clouds as hard as you want. You're plunging to your death. You have to strap the parachute on first and then jump. We have to strap ourselves to Jesus. We have to have his life invade our heart, breathe us into life, literally bring our spirits to life in him, create that righteousness, and from that love is how we're able to love each other. It's how we're able to love those who are lost and share the truth with them. It is always, always the love of God in our hearts first that lead to the works, never the reverse. Otherwise, we're trying to earn his favor. So Paul is saying, don't miss it. The Messiah has come. The promise of salvation is here, so pay attention. Put your faith in Jesus and be accepted by God. If you have put your faith in Jesus, remember that. Do not let the enemy in the inner loop that plays in your mind condemn you. You were redeemed. You were washed clean in the blood of Jesus. You are accepted by God because of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. start by reading a prayer of um, Horatio Bonner. Now, now, not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb, thy, thy blood alone, o Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Do you hear that? Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O God, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on, div- on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. Jesus, I thank you for the time this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for leaving us a tangible example in your word and the church. I pray, Lord, that we will remind each other of this as we love law. We love to make laws out of everything. We love to make laws out of how much or how often you should share the gospel. We love to make laws out of how much you should dwell on the gospel. These are good things, Lord, but help us to remember that the love of you is what gives us our hope, that your love put in our hearts, your salvation, you're rescuing us, you're calling us to faith, and then doing the work to give us the faith is what gives us the hope. I pray now as we worship and then take the Lord's Supper, I pray we'll be reminded of that. I thank you, Lord, but because of Jesus, we can be free to confess sin. We don't have to be accepted by our works. We can be transparent with each other. We can pray for each other. We can love each other. We can assume the best about each other. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to walk in with our chest out and try to show everyone how great we are, that we come in and we, we point to how great you are. So I thank you, Lord, for that. I pray you will help us in this time. In your name, amen.